Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. I'm here in New York with the Memphis Grizzlies, one of the surprise teams in all of the NBA this season. And something of a podcast doubleheader for you, starting out with Taylor Jenkins, the first year head coach of the Grizzlies, who's got this team in playoff contention, currently the eighth seed in the Western Conference, and talked with Taylor about his history with Greg Popovich and Quinn Snyder and, and of course, Mike Budenholzer is an assistant in Atlanta and Milwaukee. And then the second part of this podcast with Rookie of the Year favorite, John Morant and his teammate, Jaron Jackson, who both players have the makings of future all-stars in the NBA, but have the Grizzlies right now in what many of us would have thought was improbable playoff contention. But before we get going here in New York with the Memphis Grizzlies, make sure you're also listening to The Low Post with Zach Lowe, Brian Winters and the Hoop Collective, and the SVP Pod with Scott Van Pelt. So let's get to it, and let's start with my conversation with Memphis Grizzlies first-year head coach, Taylor Jenkins. The Woj Pod is sponsored by Delta Airlines who believes that the more you go out and see this world of ours, you'll find that there's more that connects us than divides us. One of the great luxuries of traveling, as much as I do in this job, is getting to check in on some of the league's best players, coaches, and executives. And some of the best times are when we connect not only about our shared love and passion of basketball, but also about family, friends, and even food. So no matter where you're headed next, know that when you meet new people, you might have more in common than you think. Delta, keep climbing. Here with Taylor Jenkins, the Memphis Grizzlies coach, the coach of the eighth seed in the Western Conference, uh, 30 and 31 uh, as we tape this, Taylor. And the, the Western Conference Coach of the Month for January, I always, I've never, what do you get for coach of the month? You get a certificate suitable for framing, as they used to call it when we were a kid? <laughs> no, first off, thanks, Woj, for having me. Um, yeah, obviously a great honor. Um, you get a lot of text messages, you know, some phone calls, um, you know, got a great letter and a, a little trophy from the uh, Coaches Association. I was very, very appreciative of that. So something to, you know, Hold on to and just remember the great month that we had, you know, all the growth that we've had up to that point of the season. So uh, definitely a, a humbling honor, um, you know, hoping for more team success for sure. Yeah, I always imagine you guys getting like those certificates that like your mother used to hang up on the refrigerator. Yeah, with some stars. Like with a magnet. And, oh, yeah, wife, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the coach of the month, player of the week. A little bit more right? professional with a letterhead. And, yeah, yeah, no, so. no, it's good. It's When you think, Taylor, of – listen, you had been a head coach in the G League – uh, you'd been an assistant for four years. You'd been a head coach for one year. And head coaching experience is head coaching experience. Like you get a lot thrown at you. What's the one thing at this level that until you were in the seat, until you've done it now for a preseason and 60-plus games, that no one could really, even sitting there with Mike Budenholzer for, in Atlanta and Milwaukee, what was the one or two things that you go, boy, people couldn't prepare me for that or how much that takes whether it's a challenge or how much time in my day that thing takes. Well, I think a lot of it at the end of the day, what it boils down to is your voice as a coach. Um, you know, when you're an assistant, you know, even dating back, like you talked about when I was in the D league, you, you find your coaching voice when you're running workouts and you're leading scouts, 
you know, you're having dialogues and building relationships with the other players and helping from the sidelines, but it's all in a servant assisting role. But then when you have that head coaching experience, which I did my last year with the Toros, you know, you've taken all that stuff you've done before and now you're the final one to speak. You're the one to make the final decisions, all the thought process that you have uh, as a head coach. Ultimately, it's what are you ultimately going to speak? What are you going to tell the players in a film session? What are you going to tell them in a practice? What are you going to tell them in a game and a timeout? Um, obviously I've been blessed to, you know, watch, you know, pop up close, uh, you know, work with guys like Coach Bud and Quinn Snyder and Kenny Atkinson, other great coaches in the NBA. And you just get these bits and pieces from them. And that helps you develop your coaching voice. And not until you're actually in that seat that people talk about, and you're the one that has to make that final decision or make that play call or make that substitution or make that choice to, you know, jump on a player in a film session and go after them and push the buttons. It's your voice. It's, uh, you know, all the preparation you've done before, which you do as an assistant, you know, we're feeding head coaches as assistants every single day with ideas here and there, how to help the team. Um, but you know, it, it's not until you're in that seat that it's all that preparation before, um, that gets you to the point where now you're the one that has to make that call. You have to be the one that speaks up and makes those decisions. You know, you, you talk about getting your coaching voice and I always remember something Steve Clifford, uh, I think he said it to me on a podcast and we were talking about when he was becoming, I think I had coach in college for the first time and he went and chased down Jeff Van Gundy, who was with the Knicks then about just getting some advice, like a few things you could tell me about being a head coach. For the first time, I think he was at Delphi in New York. And one thing that Jeff told him then that always stayed with him is as, as a head coach, you've got to be really maybe economical in your words that if you're giving, if you're talking all the time and you're giving direction all the time, after a while, maybe it's just that you've got to be focused on the few things that are important. And when you, his thing was when you call a team in to huddle and practice, that it better be really important. It can't just be play hard, let's work. Like, what, what do you learn about how much volume you give the players of your voice and deciding what's important and what needs to have impact with them? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great thing you have to deal with as a head coach especially, but that's why you got to be relying on your assistant coaches. Um, you know, they're an extension of your voice. They're working hand-in-hand hand with the players every single day in their own individual development. Um, all the stuff we're doing in practice, I hopefully empower the you know my staff to run a lot of drills so that, you know, what you just said as the head coach, when you speak, it's impactful, that you know you have to be very diligent with the amount of words, not just the specific words and the point you're making, but how much. Um, you know, attention spans, you want to get, you know, I'm a big believer of less is more. It's a good old popism. Um, but when you're speaking, it's to deliver a specific message so then you can get back to work. Um, and then, you know, I talk about my assistants all the time. They're the ones carrying that message that we're having our staff meetings all the time. And when they go out and work with our players, they can elaborate a little bit more about what, you know, Coach Jenkins is talking about. Obviously, you know, you're running timeouts, you're running film sessions, and there's an educational piece. Sometimes you have to know your audience at the end of the day. Sometimes you probably have to speak a little bit more and, you know, uh, coaches always talk about there's a feel to the game. There's a feel to how much you need to talk, how less you have to talk. Um, and that's been, Something that you kind of just observe as an assistant growing up. You see Pop do it. You see Bud do it. Um, and when I talked about finding your coaching voice, ultimately you have to decide how much to use that voice. Um, and that's been fun. You know, it's always knowing the pulse of your team, individual players who needs more or less. Um, and, you know, that, that's a fun challenge every day as a coach. And that's one of those things that you talk about what coaches deal with, especially head coaches. That's on your mind all the time about what messages you have to deliver to your team so that you're all steering in the right direction. You're not playing 
polluting their mind with too much nonsense or too much overflow or um, you're keeping it simple so they can go out there and just play you know hard you know which is the stuff you talked about it's it's not just play hard and compete and do this you give them specific things to work on so they can go out and just focus on the top line compete and play hard taylor when you sat down with your gms at climbing and front office and you get the job and you're mapping out what this is going to look like this year and you've got to you know your core guys are very young you were going to play two rookies a lot obviously john morant who you knew you were going to hand the ball from day one and brandon clark becomes uh, an important player for you and and, and uh, jaron jackson in his second year was there ever really any conversation about yeah we think we might have a team here that could be competing for the playoffs like has this exceeded any conversation you guys had early about how you were going to kind of grow the team and how you were going to do this and then all of a sudden you find yourself one day and you know we're now in march and we're in the we're still in the playoffs yeah i mean i think uh one of the great things about you know the situation i'm in now um you know i'm very blessed because i think zach and i have been on the same page since day one you know through the interview process you know the amount of authenticity he gave in our interview about where we're at as an organization you know from ownership all the way through front office to the coach being in alignment um, you know, what our projection was going to be, not just for this year, but for the long term, how we were going to build a roster, how we were going to build for the playoffs. And, you know, obviously we're in a great spot right now, you know, with, uh, you know, 20 ish games left, you know, eight seed, you know, with a few game lead. Uh, we just focus on, let's just build the right habits. You know, if we do that the right way, and I think that was the expectation that Zach had, you know, there was no timeline to when we need to make the playoffs. Um, there's just a culture of winning. You know, we knew it was going to take time with a young group and a new group, even getting some, you know, vets in here with these young guys you were talking about is let's not put any pressure on the playoffs have to be by this time. I think there was obviously a patience knowing that there's going to be some nurturing and growth that we're going to have to go through, especially this first year laying this foundation. Um, but to be where we're at right now, there's an excitement that it's because we haven't been talking about the playoffs and saying, well, the playoffs are going to be in year two or three or four. Um, we'll wait. There's an aggressiveness to just develop, you know, aggressive aggressiveness to develop winning habits the fact that you know we we've got the ultimate faith in our young guys ja jaron brandon you know dylan and then the vets that we've surrounded them that a lot of them have playoff experience um you know people ask is this a surprise and i'm saying we've just been focused on just one day at a time and knowing that if the guys invested in themselves and we've got that competitive group that you know we knew that we were building from day one um that we could be in this position and the fact that we are i think it's a credit to all the work the guys have been doing and Hopefully this is just the start of something very bright for us in Memphis. Taylor, when you have a playmaking talent like John ja Morant who comes in the league still very young and you hand him the ball and, and it's his team, what's your responsibility to him and to the team with sort of, you know, balancing, allowing him to be creative, try things, try and fail, try and succeed, but still do it within – okay, here's a way we want to play. Like, what's that process like between head coach and number two overall pick that very well may be rookie of the year and perennial all-star and all the things that may come for him down the line? I think like with any player, you know, for me, I think the number one thing is obviously there's a plan in place. You know, you've got to establish a culture. You got to establish a system of play. You know, you're, you're talking about your quarterback with your team, you know, your point guard, uh, guy that's going to go out there and fuel your offense, but not putting any hard caps on any player, play to their strengths. I mean, you talk about jar or any guy on our roster. And knowing, you know, uh, you know, from, you know, Zach and I talked and, you know, people would ask, are we planning on starting him day one? I'm like, absolutely. 
you know, because we see the talent, we see the competitive edge, we see the leadership that this kid already has at 19, coming in the league, turning 20, and then just saying, I want you to go out there and play full throttle. I want you to just go play basketball, play to your strengths, and guide him in the same light. Because what's unique about a lot of our guys, especially Ja, is super coachable, super humble, wants to be great, um, knows what he's capable of doing, but realizes he's got to do it in a new team scope, new teammates, new system, adjusting from college to the NBA. And as a coach, it's just kind of walking hand in hand, building a relationship and helping him understand, I want you to play to your strengths. I want you to go out there and make the high flying plays. I want you to play at breakneck speed. And then we'll slowly show you how that fits in the team system, how teams are guarding you, where you can be successful, not just for yourself, but for your teammates. So it's in alignment. They're running the same course. It's not putting a hard cap saying, hey, I know this is what you've done previously, but this is how you're going to do it now. Um, and I think we're fortunate. I, you know, I like to think that our system fits his game really well and I'd like to think he fits our system really well and um, you know that's all the homework that the front office does on you know uh, the players that we bring into the system but the ultimate faith knowing that this kid knowing that he knows what he can do uh, but helping him also understand what he's even more capable of doing within this team frame that hopefully elevates his game and allows him to discover under other layers for himself and for his teammates uh, that's the great stage he's at in just this rookie uh, career is knowing how he's making his teammates better. He's always been this unselfish point guard, but just learning how this system is unfolding and evolving and how his teammates are evolving as well, he's taking on that responsibility. So, you know, that's cool as a coach because you're helping him develop his own responsibility, but now him and himself is finding responsibility and helping others too. When you you and your staff get with him early, whether it's first few practices, preseason are there moments early on, like you can watch a lot of tape and you see him in college and, and all those things, but are there moments with a talent like that and how explosive and just unique he is where you guys would find yourself just kind of looking at each other going, like, is, is he maybe as good as we, we, we think he is here? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm... I, <laughs> I have vivid memories of thinking back to the first couple of practices of, uh, you know, training camp because we hadn't gotten to see him, you know, because he was coming off of a knee surgery from the summer. And obviously he plays, like you said, the athleticism, the speed of play, his ability to read the game was unbelievable. You know, first time, you know, playing with NBA players, uh, his competitive fire and just the amount of plays that he was making at a high level driving in, finishing at a high level, driving in and kicking out to a guy that probably wasn't expecting in the past because this is their first time playing together. Um, just his ability to read the game and make the right play so quick at NBA speed and then to do that early on in the season. Now we're at a point in the season where teams are, you know, we got a couple guys, you know, hurt, you know, and more onus is going to be on taking jaw away, you know, taking away the paint, you know, where we've been thriving all season long and how he's able to adapt. But, like you just asked, I mean, from the very get-go, you see the high-flying dunks and, you know, his teammates set him up for lobs. Uh, but his ability to be so creative just by playing. And, you know, obviously early on when you get new players in your program, you just want to evaluate them. You want to see how they fit in, you know, what their strengths are without giving them limitations or, you know, true guidelines on how you play. I mean, there were so many moments in that preseason. You're like, wow, this kid is even more than what I saw just on tape in college and that he's doing it already at NBA speed, NBA physicality. He's already doing it. Who knows what's going to be happening year two, three, four, five, 10, 15. That's what's so exciting about him. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. 
They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. And it's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting orders and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash woge. That's netsuite.com slash woge to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits. netsuite.com slash woge. I want to rewind a little bit, Taylor. You you get an internship with the Spurs. Essentially, your grandmother knew Peter Holt, the yep. owner. Yep. You were at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, which, you know, certainly a breeding ground of future Spurs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're starting a whole department now. I mean, yeah. It's, it's been great. <laughs> you know, it's it's a traditional path to, yeah. to work with uh, Greg Popovich, R.C. Buford. You get this internship and you spend a year first tell tell me about that first year as an intern who you were working with what they had you doing so it was actually a summer internship uh between my junior and senior year so like you said my grandmother knew peter holt uh owner of the spurs and i was fortunate enough to be on the phone with him and he said well what do you want to do i said i'd love to you know shadow with the gm you know and what better way than to work with you know best gm in all sports rc buford um and uh, did that, you know, for three months. Uh, was working at that time. You know, Sam Presti was still there. Rob Hennigan was there. Del Demps was there. RC was obviously there. I was doing everything, cutting up film, sitting in meetings, taking, you know, handwritten notes um, before laptops were allowed in meetings, having to go transcribe that back on the computer, dubbing tapes, you know, deck to deck, VCRs, running guys from the airport for draft workouts, doing whatever, you know. Um, just absorbing and learning. Go back my senior year, come back, you know, work with the same group. Sam had moved on, um, you know, become a GM, but was really focusing on just cutting up a lot of film, you know, uh, for our draft prospects, you know, trade targets, whatever they needed for the draft room. Uh, but that allowed me to have exposure to so many different areas. I was in the video room so much, being around the practices, uh, being in all the front office meetings for all the trade, you know, dealings or uh, everything that just bought the minor league team. So all the, you know, first year steps they were making to build their minor league program. So I was doing all kinds of stuff, just kind of, you know, absorbing all the information that I could. You know, that was my mentality going is, you know, this was kind of like an opportunity to take my passion for basketball, my passion for business. I went to business school. Well, what am I going to do with that degree? And let me just absorb and learn as much. And the great access that the Spurs and RC gave me uh, was second to none. And, uh, you know, then I flip over to coaching. So <laughs> did you imagine at that time that there was anyone that organization who looked at Taylor Jenkins and said, that's a future coach with us? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, hopefully I was kind of just setting a path where they were just like, this guy loves basketball. He's a hard worker. He wants to learn. He wants to grow. And He's going to be in this business in some capacity. You know, that, that was hopefully the kind of pathway and, you know, reputation I was building. Uh, but the coaching side, it was definitely a little bit of a shock uh, when I finally said, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to coach. Um, so so. Tell, tell me that. So 
as I was told it, it was summer league. Yep. Beginning of free agency. And, and essentially, well, you tell me, you were working up maybe, working up your courage to go tell, was it R.C. Buford RC? and Dennis Lindsay? Yeah, it's, it definitely took so courage. So set the scene of what you had been doing and what you were about to tell them you, you wanted to Yeah, do. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll first off by preface this by saying unbelievably grateful and thankful for the opportunity to work with the Spurs. Um, uh, leading up to that moment, we were talking about in summer league, you know, RC had come to me, you know, George Felton, you know, longtime scout was trying to help me get connections in college to maybe be a director of basketball ops. Um, RC, and, and, and by the way, George Felton, how many times have you been with George Felton where he had his back to somebody and they thought it was who? Pop. Pop. Yeah. Right. He, yeah. he looks, I've, I've been with that him. That's very times true. People yell pop out to him. Yeah. How he yeah. stands. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. that's very, All right, but go ahead. Finish your stuff. Uh, no, um, you know, and then RC, you know, obviously sports minutes and becoming, you know, so huge in this world now was potentially going to create a new position for me. And, you know, so all along, they're all thinking front office. We're going to try to help Taylor get something, you know, a new position in the front office to stick around. And deep down inside, after, you know, watching all the practices, seeing, you know, pop in action, knowing way back when I was a junior in high school, I wanted to coach at some point, but maybe when I was 50, <laughs> um, and getting to build relationships with Quinn Snyder, going up there and visiting him. I basically took that courage and I went to Dell, talked about my interest in maybe going into coaching, talked to Quinn Snyder and said, Hey, I'd love to just be a fly on the wall. And, you know, saw an opportunity. Roy Rogers had just left to go to the NBA. So I'd love to just come, you know, intern, do whatever you need me to do. I'm ready to take this leap. And I go into RC's, you know, hotel room, summer league and, you know, he says, you know, what have you thought about this new position I'm, you know, going to create for you on the sports medicine side? I said, well, you know, I've thought about it hard and I think I'd love to coach. I've talked to Dell. I've talked to, uh, you know, Quinn Snyder and, you know, with your blessing, I'd love to take this opportunity. And he kind of looked at me. He was like, are you, are you crazy? Are you serious? Like, where does this come? This was from left field. You know, that he had not anticipated this. And, um, but again, so much, uh, gratitude and thanks for them to just have the faith in me, to give me an opportunity. A kid that didn't play in college, didn't work with a college team, uh, only had coached inner city kids. You know, Quinn Snyder to this day was always like, don't discredit working with 10 to 13 year olds. That's a passion. That's a passion for teaching and coaching. And, you know, I start, you know, uh, cutting my teeth and, you know, getting my feet wet at the Miley level. I tell people all the time, don't ever forget about the Miley's going in and investing in yourself, investing in your craft. Uh, love the game of basketball. I love to teach. Um, and this was the best avenue, best pathway, the, the support the Spurs had given the Toros year in and year out, you know, learning under, you know, Quinn Snyder, you know, Brad Jones, who's an assistant of mine now was, you know, my leader for two years. And the amount of stuff that I learned from those guys helped me prepare to be a head coach in the Meyer leagues. Bud saw something in me, all those summers I spent training camps, I spent in the Spurs organization, you know, and then the vote of confidence to bring me with him to Atlanta. And it's just one year after the other. So, you go into that hotel room or suite at Summer League. Front office is in the middle of free agency. That's ongoing. Like, did you leave that room with, okay, we're going to, or did you leave that room going, did you hear, let, let me let me think about that. Yeah, what, what, what no, was, it definitely took him by surprise. Like you said, the timing was not probably the, the best to bring up my stuff when they had so many other big things that they were dealing with. Um, I was actually going on vacation. You know, they were giving us, uh, interns, you know, a couple weeks off. I was going back to Dallas, my hometown. Um, I was doing the first shift of summer league, Brian Pauga, you know, in the NBA, he was taking the second shift. We were interns together, go back home. I'm literally about to get on a flight to go to Europe for two weeks. 
and um, uh, Del De- uh, actually uh, Rob Hennigan calls me and says, "Hey, just want to give you a heads up. You know, I'm being elevated. There might be an opportunity for you to take on a bigger role on the front office side." I talked to Dell. He echoed the same thing that there was this opportunity. So they're all out in Vegas, and I'm literally getting on a flight the next day. And I had to quickly in that moment decide, do I want to pursue this maybe potential opportunity, which uh, ultimately Brian took on, has, has done great um, things uh, on the front office side. And I said, you know what, you know, I poured all this time, you know, these nights thinking about what I ultimately wanted to do. I wanted to coach and to know that I had the vote of confidence of Dell and Quinn and Dell had to go back to RC while I was in Europe for two weeks and kind of fight for me. You know, so much credit to him, you know, gratitude there. Um, I stuck it out, said, I want to do this coaching thing and come back from Europe. And, you know, they said, let's do it. You're, you know, Quinn was ready and I became one of his assistants and, you know, it kind of went from there. Before you went into that hotel room, did you practice? <laughs> Had you practiced how you were going to approach him with this or you just, you just went in? And- uh, I just kind of went for it. I, yeah. I, the only prep I probably did was, you know, uh, just read the moment and whenever yeah. RC gave me a win of opportunity to kind of just, Say, this is what I've been thinking. Because usually he's doing about 10 things, especially on oh, yeah. you doing oh, 10 he things was, at once. He was going from room to room. Yeah. He was going from his bedroom to the living room to the, the bar area to back and grabbing his cell phone, all this. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm here to take notes and continue my current internship job. And he, and then when he turned around at one point and said, have you given any more thought? You know, cause I know you're going about to Italy. Have you given any more thought to this, you know, sports, you know, medicine role, you know, this organizer? Say, well, I actually have. And that was my time not to tell him, you know, well, you've got to give me this job, but this is why I want to do this job. This is why I want to pursue this coaching career. And, you know, hopefully I'd built up enough, you know, equity with them that, you know, I was passionate about, you know, you know, my work ethic and, you know, it's learning and growing and giving whatever I could to the Spurs organization. Um, but I definitely had to find that minimal minimal opportunity to, to get my, you know, my, my pitch in there. Taylor, you know, it's funny. People, there's like different, I guess, genres of coaching backgrounds. And, you know, people are always talking about like the college coach to the NBA and how that's worked in different scenarios. But now there's a generation of G League, when you started D League, G League guys who had assistant coaching experience and then head coaching experience who've come in and look at the group from Quinn Snyder, Nick Nurse, yourself. There's others. I remember Nick and I think Maybe you sense this when you have injuries and guys are out. The one thing about coaching at, at the minor league level anywhere, your roster is constantly shuffling, right? You can't – day-to-day, you can't count on who's going to get called up, who's going to – Get assigned, who's going to get bought out, who's going to go sign overseas. Oh, yeah. Is there – when you think now – now when you've had a play without Jackson, a play without Clark, and you have a trade where guys come and go – was there value in that G League head coaching experience based on that? 100%. I think, you know, when I think back to my uh, days there, one of the great, greatest learning opportunities for me was, you know, you can't really prepare for it, but it's easy to say you just prepare for the unknown. Um, your roster is constantly going to be changing. Um, you know, the, the flights you're taking, the gym availability, the resources aren't what you have at the NBA or, you know, top D1 colleges. It's, it's new for not just coaches, but for the players. It's prepare for the unknown. And I think that just kind of gives you a, a mental fortitude to just be able to whatever gets thrown your way. Um, as an assistant, now obviously as a head coach, you'll be able to solve the problem. You'll be able to figure out how to handle something in that moment um, that you're prepared to handle anything that gets thrown your way. So, you know, obviously so much roster turnover, you know, you can be the best team, 
you know, for a stretch of the season, then you can flip to the worst team because you just never know what's going to happen. Um, but are you going to let that impact your work ethic every day? Are you going to let that impact your decision making? You're going to say, well, we'll just kind of roll with it. We'll just figure it out day to day, moment by moment. Uh, and then over time, you get enough experience. You do have a preparation. You do know how to handle when something gets thrown at you that you're not going to overreact or you lose your mind about or say, I don't know how to solve this. Um, I think there's a strength in that. There's a strength in only having maybe three coaches where now in the NBA, have seven or eight coaches and full performance staffs and all the support staff. But I think there's definitely something to be learned from it. It just kind of gives you a confidence to handle anything that gets thrown your way, um, even at the NBA level, where the pressures are more, um, the games are more, the resources are more. Um, but when any little thing might kind of throw the, the, put a trickle and, you know, into the water, a pebble gets thrown and now it's a big boulder, you still have a strength and be able to figure it out. That 2018 19 season in Milwaukee. You become known for the, the <laughs> hopefully stop, something good, right? The, the stop sign <laughs> moment, right? Yep. Um, I think every assistant coach on any staff since they changed the rule years ago after that, I guess it was after the Miami, New York. I think that's when they changed the rule where if he came off the, well, no, the was rule the was Spurs in place. Phoenix. It yeah, was first Phoenix, was right? Highly, think, utilized, yeah. Right? Think of, well, right. Think of playoff series, right? There was the, that Nick Miami series with mm-hmm. Charlie Ward and that turned that series, the Spurs Phoenix. And, and so you're doing this and, and your job is to obviously keep the guys from taking even that one step or half a step or two steps onto the court. They'll pop you with a suspension, but you, I guess, I suppose it looked like you went to, it was an aggressive. Quick. Oh yeah. It was quick. It was aggressive. You were spread. As far whatever your whatever your athletic stance, those are my defensive stance. Yeah, tell me about it. And had you done that like other times, and just no one saw it? Because once that one got caught on camera, it seemed to take on a life of its own. It it definitely took a life of its own, and um, still to this day hear about it. And uh, oh, I'd done it many times. I mean, I did it back when I was in the D League. Um, It just was something you you knew about the rule you knew about the consequences you knew the about the importance of keeping guys you know from crossing that line unfortunately you know wish there was a better way to say it um you know got caught in the moment and it, it definitely went viral you know never gone viral never want to kind of go viral uh but <laughs> there, there are worse life. things you're going there's there are worse things that can happen you know to but viral on yeah. obviously as a staff you talk about it you know where there's a responsibility to as unfortunate, you know, as times happen, you know, on the floor where there's emotions and escalations that there's a something you got to protect uh, your players from, you know, crossing that line, you know, the jeopardizing of suspensions and fines and, you know, you just never know. And that just happened to be a moment where it wasn't anything that really truly got escalated. And I definitely went aggressive with my defensive slide. It's the playoffs. You just never know. Um, the guys had a good laugh sitting there. They were smiling, kind of trying to look beyond me to see what was going on, <laughs> on the court. And they're like, you're good T, but I'd done it enough times. There was a laugh and they, they knew it, but obviously faith in the guys that, that they weren't going to cross the line. But as a coach, you always want to protect your players at all costs. And if I have to take a couple of gifs or gifs or memes <laughs> or uh viral videos i'll do whatever is possible to make sure we've got our full arsenal when we go to go to go to play taylor when you work for or around coaches like greg popovich quinn snyder uh mike budenholzer i mean you look at the assistant coaching staff you had in atlanta some went to my i mean you had the year of kenny atkinson uh quinn Darvin Ham, who I think yeah. is probably going to be a future head yes, coach in the league. He's he the last guy in Milwaukee still. Mm-hmm. With, with like from that team, there's a photo, right? Everyone's yeah. got a head coach. Oh, yes. 
are there like listen you take a million things and you and like you said you take a lot of things from a lot of people and then you incorporate them and it kind of makes your own unique style but when you think of those three people pop bud quinn snyder is there like almost every day like one thing that each of those guys said or focused on that you go boy that thing is with me every day i know that's part of my routine whether it's something they said or how they did something do you find yourself as a head coach going okay i know where i got that from what i'm doing I mean, absolutely. You definitely have these uh, moments when you wake up or, you know, as I'm assessing a gym or assessing a room, you know, always as a head coach, you're trying to get the pulse of the team or the pulse of an individual. I have their voices in my head. I have, it may not even be something that they spoke. It's just me observing how they handled situations. And the one that I always come back to is you invest in people, you invest in the relationship, you show them that you care. Obviously, three coaches that are passionate about basketball, brilliant minds, they know how to communicate the game, they know how to lead, but it's how are you going to handle an interaction with a player? How are you going to handle an interaction with a staff member? Um, and that's the thing that always comes in my head when I'm in, in a room, in a gym, is i got to go talk to this player. I've got to make sure that they know that I care about them, that I've been thinking about them, that I have a plan for them, that I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to hear them out as well. Um, and that's stuff that Pop, Quinn, Bud do at an extremely high level. And it's obviously the relationships with the players, but it's also with their fellow staff. The amount of time I spend with my coaching staff, I spend with the performance staff, that it's all about the relationship um, and showing that I care, that I want to hear them out, that I have a message for them, but I want to hear their message so that we ultimately get to go where we want to go as a team, as an organization. But that's the thing, that's that little, you know, coach on my shoulder. It's a little coach voice in my ear. It's always driven. You know, one of the great things that Quinn told me one day when I was my first year coaching, he says, we're all servants in this business. It's a players league. We're blessed to be able to work with, you know, best athletes, best players, talents in the world, but they're people as well. How are you going to invest in the person? How are you going to help them be the best player person possible is you're going to show them that you care. Pop does that at the most extreme level and then spending six years with Coach Bud day in and day out. It wasn't just what he did with the players. It's what he did with his coaches, how he empowered myself, Quinn, Kenny, Darvin, Ben, St. Charles, Josh, Vin, all these guys that I've worked with. He empowers them. He cares in them to be the best coaches possible because ultimately it's about making the team the best. But every single day, that's what he poured so much into was making us the best coaches. And that's obviously why I'm sitting here today as the head coach. Do people underestimate anymore the coaches who have success and survive? And you talk about like those relationships, but it is truly like a collaboration. The coach is like the all, like you have your authority and in any, I think, good organization, like they've got to allow you to, like the locker room's yours and you have to, th- there isn't always a lot of like maybe management ownership, ownership treading in there. But if you can't work with ownership and if you can't build those relationships with players, it, it, it's a different age, right? The way organizations are set up and the way the players have evolved that the dictatorship or the, you're going to do it because I told you to, to above you, below it. feels like you cannot survive in this league that way anymore. You absolutely have to have synergy um, on all fronts. Um, you know, that's why I think I'm in a great spot with, with our ownership, you know, uh, Zach and I's relationship, you know, all of our players. 
um, it's it's a daily process of showing that we're all on the same page. Are we all going to agree eye to eye? Are we all going to be passionate in certain directions that may not be in line? Sure. So let's find that alignment because at the end of the day, that's where we're only going to be at our best. So it's been great having you know the dialogue with you know all Memphis ownership, you know Robert, Zach, having extended relationships with the rest of the front office as well. Um, the relationships that Zach has with our players, you know, it's not this everyone's in their own world department because I mean this is a fast moving game. This is a fast moving business. There's things coming at us left and right, multitude of games, you know, roster decisions to make. You know, it's a 365 gig, um, but you got to have constant dialogue, constant conversation. Um, so it's I don't, I don't know if I would go as far as saying it's you know underestimated, but it's got to be at the core. You know, if you ultimately want to be supremely successful, the amount of influence that players have this day and age, you know, the relationships between ownership and players, you know, that needs to be a direct relationship. It's not, you know, owners to front office, to coaches, to players. It's all for having their, you know, one-on-one interactions and direct lines of communication. That's what I've seen with the Spurs, with the Hawks, with the Bucks. when I'm living day and day now in Memphis. And I see it makes an ultimate difference. The players at the end of the day have to feel the alignment, the synergy. Um, and I have a big role in that, obviously, you know, in that locker room, you know, in that, on that plane, uh, in that timeout. Uh, but the day in and day out, so much other things go on besides what happens in a 48 minute game or in a two hour practice. Um, and I think that, that, that goes unnoticed sometimes. And, you know, the fact that you can buy into that and believe it and live it, I think that makes a huge difference into success. Taylor, thanks, thanks for jumping in. Thanks, thanks for joining the podcast, man. This is awesome, it. Woj. Thank you, and hopefully, look forward to having many more with you as well. Absolutely, thanks, man. Hey guys, tired of that two thirty feeling? Well, you're not alone. In fact, research shows that more than seventy percent of us hit the wall after lunch. Let a five hour energy shot help you leap over that wall instead of crashing into it. Five hour energy helps you get through your crazy on-the-go life with zero sugar, four calories, and a convenient portable size. It's the perfect pick-me-up for busy, hardworking people. Now it comes in two great extra-strength tropical tastes, strawberry banana and tropical burst. They are delicious and can take you on a tropical, on-the-go experience. Try them both, then go online to shop the number 5, ourenergy.com, and use the code WOJ, W-O-J, to receive a one-time offer of 10% off your order. Go to shop5ourenergy.com and use the code WOJ, W-O-J, to receive a one-time offer of 10% off. Five-hour energy, energy on the go. Here in New York with the two young Grizzlies, John Morant, Jaron Jackson, fresh off a Nice late night flight from Atlanta. Like this is the glamorous life of the NBA, right? Like what what time did you time did you guys get in here last night? Um, probably like one, close to two. Very late. You guys, Jaron and Ja, like how much do you guys my sense is you guys do everything together. Home, on the road. What what what's what's it like having a guy who you connect with right away, who you see there, you, you know, you're building an organization. They're building an organization around and like, you're, you're just intertwined in the way you guys are right now. I mean, you know, it makes it easier on the basketball court just because, you know, all chemistry is good chemistry. But, um, at the end of the day, I think it's just, it's unique. It's organic. Uh, 
I think we're a close group overall, and we all seem to get along. Usually, just because usually because we're all young, but I would say uh, that it just it kind of just happened. It's something you really can't can't put a finger on of specifically why, but it's good. What did you know about this guy, Ja, when you get drafted by Memphis? You know, you're coming to Memphis at number two. What, what did you know about Jaron Jackson? Um, just started watching film. We kind of talked after the lottery, you know, just trying to get to know each other. After I got drafted, it was like it just went to another level. Again, like, you know, laughing, joking all the time, just, you know, learning each other. And it just carried over to the floor. What's it been like being without this guy on the court here the last few weeks, playing without him? Um, it's been tough, you know. Um, not too many guys can do what he do on the floor. Um, he does a lot for us, um, spreads the floor out, um, protect the paint, dominating the paint. Um, it's just a lot of things that, you know, you can't just add up to, but you just got to go out and just compete each and every night. Jaron, when you get drafted fourth and come to Memphis last year, you probably could sense you were at the end of one era, Conley, Marcus Saul, and the team was going to cycle into what would be the next era. What, what, what was it like early on last year with playing with Connolly, playing with Gasol, and then seeing the things start to break apart over time and knowing, hey, I'm going to be kind of front and center on, on this rebuild here now? Uh, when when the front office starts making moves, you usually get wind of, you know, things are going to start changing. Um, Mike and Mark and everybody did a great job of, leading and doing what they did for so many years that they kind of put the team in a great position where me and Dylan and at the time who were there can make an impact going forward and we know how to carry ourselves and handle ourselves and then when you add him it just it makes everything easy so think it was quick though because last year was a it was a completely different team it's come it's now it's a completely whole thing now how much jaw do you guys hear about like Memphis is used to having like a partnership, right? It was Marcus Saul and Mike Conley for a very long time. They accomplished a lot, got to the playoffs every year, advanced in the playoffs. When you listen to like the fan base or you listen in that community and even maybe around the building in the organization about sort of the standard those guys set, like professionalism and how they went about their business. Do you still feel it around the organization a little bit? Do you hear about it a lot? Um, I mean, of course you hear it a lot. Um, those guys meant a lot to Memphis. Um, but, I mean, we're a, a new team, like you said. Um, so we just go out and just try to be us and instead of living somebody else's life. Um, you know, just go out and compete. Um, just play together and, you know, just try to get wins. So. This was – you know how it goes when you have first-year, second-year guys. You're supposed to be in the lottery. You're supposed to take your bumps over a few years, and then maybe two years from now you compete to get the eighth spot or the seventh spot in the West. And here you guys are holding down the eighth spot. You've done it with injuries, with guys out, with some teams on your tail – Within your group, was there much conversation early about, hey, maybe we're a little bit better than people think, and, and maybe we shouldn't be putting any limits on what we can do? It is not easy to make the playoffs in the West. You guys know what you go through every night. But what was the conversation among the group about that maybe this team would be better quicker than, than anyone else imagined? 
I don't think we ever was looking to the future. Uh, we always focus on the present. I think like the first message we sent out like to each other was we're trying to be good now. So we were doing whatever we could, um, practicing hard, you know, just trying to get better each and every day. Um, just trying to continue to know, learn and grow. We got a young team. We had some vets. We got some young coaches. So just everybody, you know, just bought into what we have to do, um, learning everything. And then once we got clicking, we just went on the roll. Yeah, I think from, from the start, we knew our ability and what we were capable of. But like you said, you know, staying in the present is key. I think when you stay in the present and do just your habits every day, everything works out the way it should if you just put in the work. And, you know, that's what we did. And we've always been confident. It didn't, it didn't come from anything. It didn't come from like wins or we just, we're, we're going to have the confidence regardless to go out there and play because we're doing what we love at the end of the day. It doesn't, doesn't matter if we're winning, we're losing. We're going to do the same thing. Yeah. Jaron, you've seen Ja. He's had, I think there's two plays this year that I think Ja's gotten more, like, made more highlights, gotten more attention for two missed dunks, right, than anybody gets on made ones. The Kevin Love one earlier this season and then Anthony Davis, the AD one, the other night. Like, are you guys waiting for him? Like, one of these days he's – one of those is going to go down against one of these guys, right? Like, are you, like you seem to get a little closer on those when he's putting, trying to put one down on, you know, seven foot all star guy in this league. Are we getting closer to seeing it? I mean, you've already seen it as well. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of crazy dunks he's missed, but there's a lot of crazy dunks he's made. And you're going to see a, probably a lot of both for many years, <laughs> but you just got to remember that's, at the end of the day, that's that's not all to his game. Right. Um, you know, those dunks are crazy. But, you know, the other parts of his game, the fact that he's able to read the floor and pass like he is, is, is the reason why we're getting wins. And that's pretty much all I care about at this point. Do you, do you fear for his safety? I mean, he's it's like he's 10 feet up in the air flying. He's it, It's a hard landing on those. Is there a part of you like, all right, don't get hurt doing these? Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe on a couple, I was like, oh, but I, you know, body control. He has good body control. So, you know, we work on, we work on stuff like that, uh, landings and jumping and weird stuff to make sure that doesn't happen. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Do you, John, in that moment, what is, how in your mind are you calculating sort of the risk reward of putting one down? on somebody about because you know you get caught up in the air you get hit or is it just instinct you just see the rim and and just go well i just see the rim and go um i'm always aggressive my mindset is just go finish the play um i honestly don't care who's under the goal um still that same mindset so the ad one the other night was there a moment you thought i, I i've got this one i've got this one um, no, nah, I just caught the the back door and just going to the finish. Um, I think they end up calling a charge, but I mean, I just wasn't able to get all the way up before. I wasn't able to get all the way up before uh, they called it. So Scott's Turf Builder Thicker Lawn has announced. 
that they have obtained the solution to getting a thick, lush green lawn in exchange for all of your hard work. A pretty sweet deal for both sides. It has everything you need to turn your lawn into the thick green paradise that you deserve. With its three-in-one solution, you can get up to a 50% thicker lawn with just one application. With Scott's Turf Builder Thicker Lawn, you can finally get the thickest, greenest lawn you've always dreamt of. Grab a bag today and get thicker quicker. This is a Scott's yard. Also, Scott's No Quibble Money Back Guarantee states, if you're not satisfied, you get your money back. Here's something I wanted to ask you about, Ja. When your story is really well known about essentially getting discovered, Murray State assistant coach is is buying a hot dog at an AAU event, like sees you on a backcourt while he's in the concession stand line, and they start your recruitment. But the years you played with Zion in AAU in South Carolina, like I could understand if maybe people missed you because you were just maybe in an isolated area, but there were always people there scouting, recruiting, watching Zion. How do you figure that, even with that attention at that time, people still hadn't recognized what you might be able to be in college or beyond? Mm, I don't know. I think that's their fault. I was just trying to, you know, just do whatever I had to. Uh, I mean, my main focus was the win games. I mean, obviously, if you get to the championship, it's more coaches, but nobody recognized me, so wasn't much I could do after that. W- was there a time in that period, Ja, where you wondered, am, am I, am I ever going to get recruited, or was it just you always feel it was a matter of time? Yes, um, definitely. Questioned myself a lot. Um, I mean, my parents. They all talked to me um, throughout that whole process, and they didn't allow me to quit, and I didn't allow myself to quit. So um, I was just trying to do whatever I could, you know, to get better and try to find some recognition from somewhere. Jaron, how much do you think of your backgrounds? And you look at, like, tandems in the NBA, and sometimes you see guys with very different paths to the NBA, backgrounds, family, history. You know, you come up with – you've got a name that everybody recognizes because – you know, your dad plays at Georgetown. He plays in the NBA. When they hear Jaron Jackson Jr., they know that name. You've got size and the skill. Is it interesting when you think of, like, you look at Jaw's path, your path. You get recruited by everybody. You go to Michigan State, you know, one and done, play for Tom Izzo. How does that complement each other and sort of, like, the perspectives, like, you guys come at this from? Uh, well, you know, all, all paths are going to be different. The goal still stays the same. And I think, you know, in Josh's case, we, we can relate on a lot of things because we're both, you know, we both have strong families that give us a lot of support and we lean on them for a lot and they've been with us through the whole thing. And just coming from different, different things, you can have a lot of different stories and a lot of different, you know, uh, moments of advice you can give each other from your past or anything like that but I think I think that the goal stays the same uh we've we've played at every level and we know the ins and outs of the game and you know at this point we're you know still with our families still still doing the same things consistent and now 
playing together is easy. It feels like, especially the last couple of years with new leadership in Memphis and the front office organization, that it's got to feel a little bit that they're building a program and they're trying to build a program. And you've got a lot of young guys. You guys, Brandon Clark, Dylan Brooks is still a young player. Does it feel to you a little bit like, even though you were only at Michigan State for a year, I know you really loved the program and Tom Izzo and the feeling you got around something that like had roots and like had some continuity to it. Does it? Do the Grizzlies right now feel a little bit like like an extended college program based on the age and 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 how you guys are building this thing? <laughs> That's a funny way of putting it. I think it, it's just ironic that we're all young at the same time all sometimes that just happens in the NBA where you just have a team full of young guys but I I think we're taking advantage of it I think it allows us to play fast it allows us to relate to each other Um, we all have the same goals and I think when you're young you're just you're just a little more hungry so we've been hungry from the jump and that that all that has carried us you know to this point in the season and should carry us beyond as well. What do you think, Ja, about sort of like what your role is in building out sort of like what the identity of the team is going to be, the organization, the day-to-day work habits? You know guys are going to follow you too. The way you work, the way you commit, it sets the tone for everybody else. How much do you think about that each day? Um, A lot. I feel like, you know, it kind of starts with me at the point guard position. Um, I bring the ball up the floor, or I'm guarding the guy bringing the ball up the floor. So my energy determines, you know, how we start out. So a lot of the slow starts or um, games we lost because we were playing slow, I put that on me because that's my job to dictate the pace of the game. I mean, I just try to, you know, be better, be vocal, and, you know, just show guys that um, when we talk and we out there competing that, most of the time, everything works out. So, What is it like to go through sort of the the gauntlet of point guards in this league? Like almost every night, wherever you are in the NBA, I don't think there's ever been a better – I don't think there's ever been an era where there's more great point guards and lots of different styles. What's that like to learn to go against almost any city you go to right now? There's elite guards that teams are built around. What, what's that like? as a rookie sort of experiencing that night and, and the way it tests you? Um, I mean, it's crazy, um, but it's what I'm here for. Um, I came here to, you know, play against the best and show that I can go out and compete with the best. So I really don't mind it. Um, I actually look forward to challenges like that. And um, each and every night I just go out and try to prove myself. You know, a, a couple of years ago when there was that Ben Simmons, Donovan Mitchell battle for rookie of the year um obviously ben had set out the first year and people were debating whether should he really be considered a rookie i mean blake griffin had won it after sitting out a year it like there was uh, some history behind that too but you i'm sure you hear it now like zion's obviously played really well uh, he's played far fewer games than you but to me it's kind of funny that they're not going to get you guys into that kind of a pissing war like your history, your relationship with them. I can already see like no one's drawing you two into that kind of competition with each other. Like, can you feel people trying to pull you in, pull you into that? Yeah, I felt that since day one. 
before we even got drafted. That's what they were trying to do. You know, we both get asked um, a lot of questions about each other just to, for for them to hope we slip up and say something bad. Like, but it's not going to happen. Like, when you build that relationship with a guy, you play with a guy, y'all come from almost the same thing. Like, there's no way it could happen. Were there moments, though, when you think of, like, there are not a ton of players from South Carolina in the NBA. There, there's some. It's got a, a history, but we're not used to seeing it every year. Was it draft night, or was there a moment where it did hit you, though, of, like, two guys from pretty much, you know, similar area, played on the same travel team, going 1-2 in the NBA draft, where you said, okay, like, wow. Like, it is pretty amazing. Um, it was draft night. I mean, he got picked, and then I got picked. Um, that's crazy. Like, I couldn't say I would have thought that happened, you know, the same year, right behind each other. Um, but I did know, like, we both had the talents to, you know, make it to the NBA. So we were just trying to do whatever we could to, you know, achieve that dream. Jaron, having grown up in, um, you know, a, a basketball family, your dad played, you've been around it. You look around the league and guys whose dads played in the league, there's this, whether it's Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, you can go down the line. I've always sensed, like, because they've been around the locker room, even like Donovan Mitchell, his dad was in baseball, but he had been around a major league clubhouse, that there's an advantage to having been around, maybe your eyes aren't as wide when you come in, that you're used to, whether it's, like, you weren't necessarily in a locker room with your dad like some guys were based on age and all that stuff, but having been around NBA guys when you were a kid because your father's friends with them or whatever it is, that there's an advantage once you get to the league in terms of maybe it doesn't seem as big to you as it might others. Of course, I think the advantage just comes by the fact that my dad's around and he's able to tell me stories about when he was playing so I can relate it to my situation now. Uh, both situations very different but in a lot of ways he's been telling me my whole life about things in the NBA and I can relate a lot of a lot of the things that happened this whole time and for years I've been able to do that so I think just and just being around uh, NBA people and staff and little things like that I think have just over time helped me get comfortable with this what I'm doing now quicker um, but there's definitely a lot of things that I just had to figure out on my own I wouldn't say you can't get you can get all the answers from him but it, it definitely helps growing up did you hear more <clears throat> stories about the NBA or about Hoya paranoia Georgetown days shoot I think it's probably both there were so many things especially being with coach Thompson and playing with the greats and they had a great team so uh, my dad was getting to the tournament, you know, Dikembe was on his team playing with Alonzo. And then in the leagues playing with, you know, Tim Duncan and David Robinson. Those guys I, since I was younger, I've talked to and looked up to and they've given me advice. And a lot of retired players I know have given me advice just because they, they've known my dad for so long. And yeah, all of that you'll hear, I'll hear about from my dad for sure. What's the biggest thing, guys, that you – when you talk about, like, trying to do 
maybe more than what's expected out of really young players in the league. Like we said, trying to make the playoffs in the West is really hard. Like what's the two thing or a couple of things that you two, you want to make sure the rest of your group understands. Like you're leading this team at a young age that where it doesn't get off track. Like what are, is there any one or two things you guys preach to the bigger group about like what you want this thing to be about? Um, competing and never being satisfied. I mean, we're in the eighth position, but that don't mean we're going to make the playoffs. We still have a lot of games, so just, you know, not getting comfortable. Continue to do what we've been doing. Um, continue to try to get better, learn from bad games, and go out and win to try to make this push. How important is it for you guys to be in the playoffs this year? I mean, is that does that have great value to you to, to be able to break through and do it this quickly? Definitely. Um, I mean, we knew we could do it. Um, we knew we had the talent. It was just, you know, going about and going out there and translating everything we've been trying to do um, onto the court when you're playing against somebody else, not each other. Um, trying to get better, being locked in on the game plan. I feel like more people are surprised, but, I mean, we're not. You know, we're, we're very confident in ourselves, and we know what we're capable of. What about for you, Jaren? Yeah, from from the beginning, it was something that we didn't have to talk about because we already knew that that, that was everybody's goal. And the work we put in day in, day out, talking with Coach and understanding that it doesn't come overnight and being able to take – Positives and negatives from wins and losses has been huge. We've been able to, I think, learn a lot from losing games so we don't make the same mistakes. Or And, like, when we were at home for a while, we were able to put together a lot of games in a row because of that. We were able to lock in. We were able to play together defensively. And I think our communication has just been the key to us, you know, doing what we've been doing now. Like I say, you'll, and Jaron, you'll, on your social media sometimes, you'll like talk about grit and grind city, grit and grind. Your team's not, I think it's more maybe a mentality of Memphis Grizzlies basketball than it was a style of play. They played slow. It was like, to me, it was like the, the Grizz were a little bit like when Gasol and Tony Allen and Connolly, it was like a NFL team that ran the ball. They ran the ball. Like, they weren't playing fast. They killed you in the half court. You guys are just the opposite. You're flying. You're up and down the court. But, like, you still hear grit and grind around Memphis. Is that now maybe just more it's a mentality that you think, like, people in that city have about maybe the way you compete, like the persistence of a team? Like, do you, you hear that, still that theme around that city when it comes to, to the Grizz? Um, definitely. Um, I feel like it's a mentality of something that, you know, Everybody goes by in Memphis, but for us, I mean, we say we're next gen. We're not, we're not those guys who played in the past. So um, we definitely play a, a different style. We know we try to get out and run, but that grit and grind mindset is still there. Of course, next gen is what we are. Um, grit and grind is a mindset. It's something that paved the way for a long time and gave the city a lot of life and a lot of joy. And from there, we take it and we make it next gen and we make it our own. And we go out there and have fun. We go out there and 
put on a show and get get wins. Jaron Jackson, John Morant, guys, thanks. Thanks for jumping in and joining the pod, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, Memphis Grizzlies stars, John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr., and Memphis coach Taylor Jenkins. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll catch you next time.